0: The deal is that we continue to live in the reality of the resurrection. And because of that, every day, we acknowledge that Christ is risen and he is risen indeed. And that completely changes absolutely everything. Last week, we talked about the 11 ways that Easter changes everything. And people got really nervous about the time and about whether they'd make it to lunch. This week, we're going to talk about the 27 way. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just testing Yeah, no. But we continue to live in the after effects of that. We live in the aftermath of Easter. And one of the things that we said last year was that we continue to live in the echo of the empty tomb. And because of Easter, everything continues to be turned upside down. We are living in a new reality marked by the resurrection. And today, we're going to look at a passage where Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection and completely confirms the announcement that had been made earlier that morning that he is risen. And so, we're going to look at that today. There's kind of three frames as we walk through it that we'll see. And as we read through it, they're going to go one, two, three. But as we discuss them, we're going to go backwards, three, two, one. Okay, so here we go. Are we completely confused now? I hope so. All right. Chapter 20, the book of John, is this following up of the resurrection and the same day as the resurrection took place. So we're still here on Easter, um, Easter day. Okay, so verse uh, chapter 20, starting with verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews and for good reason, because they were the followers of Jesus and they had seen what had just happened to Jesus and that likelihood, uh, the likelihood was that they, were, that they would be next with that. But Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. This is a powerful statement. On, on multiple levels. One, because he, he is talking to people whose hearts are broken, whose dreams have been devastated, their faith has been crushed by what has just happened. And so he comes and he speaks these words of peace. That you thought things were one way, but they are now completely different. Let your hearts be at peace. It's also very cool, as one uh, ancient writer puts out, uh, uh, points out, That Jesus says to them, peace be with you. But he makes the point, peace is with them. Because Jesus is standing in their midst. And the presence of Christ is peace. The presence of Christ is peace. It doesn't have anything to do with the circumstances that are swirling around us. It has to do with the presence that lives within us and stands beside us. Peace is, in fact, with them. I also like this greeting Because, basically, you probably need to say this kind of thing if you're going to appear to your friends as a formerly dead, now living person. Okay? So, basically, it's like, guys, before you throw anything or run or scream like a girl, which you'll be embarrassed of later, just hold up, you know, just wait. Okay. So, basically, that's what Jesus is saying. Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and the marks of the crucifixion that had just happened. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. The rumor was true. He is risen. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, They are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, basically the the word Didymus is just Greek for twin. Thomas means the same thing in Aramaic. So Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks on his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, You have believed blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teach us today from your word. Press the truths of it down on our hearts. Pierce us. Break through the walls that we are building up. As we look at this reality of the resurrection and the the things that are coming in the wake of. Of Easter, I pray that you would just fill us in a way that changes us, that you would help us to live in this reality of resurrection, that you would help us to take every step, knowing, breathe every breath, knowing that things are now different because of what happened. On that day. And we are a week removed from celebrating. But it is still absolutely alive. And it is the center of everything that we do. You died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. You raised from the dead to overcome everything. And you are the victorious king. We are your people. and We worship you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as we see things kind of happen, one, two, three, and we're going to talk about them three, two, one, okay? And these three imperatives that Jesus lays out for us of what it means to live in the reality of the resurrection. And number one, the first imperative for us as Christians is believe, believe. So we're going to look at this story of doubting Thomas, right? That's how we know him. It, and it, that phrase Um, comes from this passage, obviously, but it is spread all the way through our culture. I mean, it's it's something you can say, and people automatically know what you mean by that. People who, who don't even hardly know this story would refer to someone else maybe as a doubting Thomas. It's a very commonplace kind of phrase. And poor guy, all right, from this moment, he gets labeled through the rest of history as doubting Thomas because of this moment in the room when he doesn't believe In the resurrection of Jesus. Here's the thing. I feel really bad for Thomas. Because imagine this. Like, okay, say you've gone down to Sutton's to get like a hot dog and a milkshake and some poster board and some allergy medicine and (laughs) a card for your mom for Mother's Day. Okay, which all of which you can get at Sutton's. one of the only places in the world. All right. So... (laughs) You're there, you're, you're totally away, and when you get back to your dorm room, your suite mates tell you that the entire uh, UNC basketball team showed up while you were gone. And they invited you guys to go and, and to play basketball with them, and you went out and you like, run, ran like nine games and were completely undefeated, and now you're really good friends, and Kendall Marshall looks taller in person than he does on TV, and John Henson is very charming and hilarious, Okay. And you are mad, right? You are mad. You're like, what? Are you kidding me? That is terrible. What terrible timing, okay? Or, or imagine you go out of town for the weekend, and you come back home, and your family tells you, yeah, while you were gone, the, the Mumford and Sons tour bus broke down right in front of our house, <laughs> all right? And they got out, and Justin Bieber was with them too, Okay? <laughs> because he just got his license and they were letting him drive the bus, all right? It turns out he's a totally cool kid and wise beyond his years, okay? And they begin to tell you these stories about how they share with you, like, all of these incredible tales from the road, and and they, like, made omelets for you, and it was awesome, all right? You would be so mad. You would be so upset, and you're like, that is the worst timing possible, right? You get the feeling here. Okay, now replace the scenario of UNC basketball team, remove them, and then or, or remove Mumford and Sons and Justin Bieber, okay? And instead put in their place the risen son of God. Okay? Bad timing, poor Thomas. This is like worst news possible. And so, you know, he thinks that they're like totally kidding with him when he first comes back. And they're like, you're never going to believe what's what happened. You know, he's like, I hate you guys. All right. I hate you. And and as he understands that they are serious about this, then Thomas makes this statement. Right. Thomas makes a statement that earns him this name for the rest of history. His statement that is kind of sarcastic. But in light of what really happened on the cross, in light of what really happened on the resurrection, in light of who Jesus really is, then this statement is not just sarcastic, it's sacrilegious. It's a gruesome statement to make about the Savior of the world. And he says, I will not believe unless I touch the scars myself. And then he goes a step further and says, unless I place my hand in his side, unless I reopen the very wounds that caused his Death, then I will not believe. What a what a statement for someone to make, not just sarcastic but sacrilegious. But here's the thing about Thomas. Here's the thing. Just like the rest of us, Thomas's doubts are born not just out of out of um, just that he needs more evidence. Okay. Thomas's doubts are born out of a very personal kind of pain. He loved Jesus. Thomas was the one that when Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to put me to death. Thomas was the one that said, I will go with you and let me die with you. He loved Jesus. He loved him. Thomas's faith had been crushed by the cross. And so we see a man right here who is in desperate need of a resurrection. So we might think of him as doubting Thomas. But we need to cut Thomas a break because we are the exact same. We are the exact same. No one asks us to believe in the truth of Jesus Christ just because someone else tells us it's happened for them. We all need a personal encounter with the once dead, now living living Savior, Son of God, Jesus Christ. We all need that. Unless we feel the truth of that pushing on our hearts, unless we feel the Holy Spirit stirring in us, unless we have an experience with Jesus Christ, we wouldn't believe either. And that's what Thomas needed, and that's what Jesus gives to him. I love that the early church fathers, they they were very compassionate towards Thomas and towards his lack of belief. Here's what they say. One said, the unbelief of Thomas is more profitable to our faith than the belief of the other disciples. Because we know exactly what that is like. We also are the ones who didn't get to be in the room. So we know what it's like. Another one says this, Thomas was not curing only the uncertainty of his own heart, but also that of all human beings. This moment was a foundation for the faith he needed to proclaim such a mystery. And another says this, the divine mercy ordained that a doubting disciple should, by filling uh, filling in his master the wounds of the flesh, he should heal in us the wounds of unbelief. We feel the same way. We feel the same way. And Jesus offers every one of us An experience, not where we get to feel the wounds, but where we do feel the wounds being poured out on us, where we understand that our sins are forgiven, where there's this witness, not just from other people, but a witness in our own souls and in our own hearts that he is real and that he has come to us and that he has revealed himself to us. We all need that. We all need that. So it's not just doubts, even disciples doubt. The question is what we do with the doubts once God has revealed himself to us. Dr. Tim Tennant, who's the president of Asbury uh, Theological Seminary, said this talking about Thomas. He says, Thomas, absolutely, you know, there's this moment of doubt. But from that point on, he becomes not doubting Thomas, but believing Thomas. And so Thomas makes this statement when Jesus shows up. He says, my Lord and my God. He calls him my God. And this is a more profound statement of Jesus' divinity than we find being made by any of the other disciples. Peter calls him the Christ and the Messiah. But Thomas calls him God himself. And he goes further than the other disciples go. Once he has experienced Christ, that his his, his doubts dissolve and he makes this bold proclamation of who Jesus is. Also, Christian tradition tells us that Thomas became a missionary and he got as far as India with the message of the gospel, went further than any of the other disciples went, carrying the message of who he had seen and what it meant to his life. Incredible. So Jesus has this compassion towards us when we doubt. And he reveals himself. But understand this. Jesus also makes this statement to Thomas where it's not just compassion, but Jesus also challenges him. Because there's this moment when he says, Okay, Thomas, you've seen, you've experienced it. Stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. Do you think Thomas had any more doubts through the rest of his life? Do you think Thomas, when he's carrying the gospel to the world, that he has doubts? Absolutely, I'm sure he does. Do you think Jesus appeared to him in risen form again and said, okay, do you need to touch again? Do we need that again? Of course he didn't. No way. Thomas had doubts later, but he had to hang on to that experience of what he knew was real. When God showed up in his life, And there are other experiences along the way that might want to counter that. But he held close to the assurance of what happened in that moment. And God asks us to do the same. And he says to us, I have compassion for your doubts. But here's a challenge as well. You've experienced me. Now stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. You know, it's real. You've experienced it. Stop doubting and believe. Our faith is one of reason. Our faith is one of logic. Our faith is one that is compatible with scientific discovery. But with our faith, there will always be a gap between evidence and belief. There always will be. And Jesus asks us to step into that which we do not fully know. And he says to us, as one of the ancient writers said, he says, the limit of your senses do not determine the limit of reality. To live like that is to live in a cage. There will always be a gap between evidence and belief, and that's why it's faith. And he requires and he asks us to take this step. He says, you've experienced me. Now stop doubting and believe. And we can become like Thomas, not doubting Thomas, but believing, Thomas, that our lives look completely different because we've experienced the once dead, now risen Savior, Jesus Christ. That's frame one. We're going to come back in just a few minutes with frame two. We're going to take a few moments here to respond to that in worship. Let that sit on your heart. Let the Spirit prod your heart and probe your heart with this idea. Believe. Believe. He has compassion for our doubts. Absolutely. But there's also a challenge to us. Stop doubting and believe. First imperative to us about living in this new reality of resurrection is believe. Believe. Absolutely, there is room for doubt in this faith. God has compassion for our doubts, but he says to us, you've experienced me now. Believe, believe. If you want to make that declaration, I just want to remind about something that Justin said earlier. We are doing baptisms today. I love it. A baby dedication, a baptism on the same day. This is a good day. All right. I love it. If you would like to experience baptism as a declaration of your belief In Jesus Christ, He has changed your life and that you live differently because you now live in the reality of resurrection. Then talk to us afterwards. We'll be glad to walk you through that and to walk with you down to the creek today as you are buried and raised back up. So we'll talk about that. Okay. Three, two, one. Three is believe, two, forgive. Forgive. When Jesus shows up, He shows His hands. And he shows his wounds to the disciples and the words that roll off of his tongue are forgive, forgive. And he gives this challenge to us and he says, you must forgive people of their sins. Now, does that mean that you and I have the power because we forgive someone that we have completely washed their sins away? No, you and I do not have that divine power. But what Jesus is inviting us into in this statement here is to be the agents of mercy and grace in this world. And he's saying to us, if you don't tell people about the message of forgiveness, about what these wounds did for them, about what these scars won for them, then how will they ever know? If they don't hear it from you, if they don't see it in your life, if they don't experience it by the way That you live in this world. You are agents of mercy and grace. Forgiveness is in your hands. Spread the word. Spread the word. And so here he is. This man who has just been unfairly judged. Unfairly convicted. Tortured and murdered. And the first thing that he says to his disciples. One of the first things here coming out of his mouth is. Forgive. Forgive. Forgive the people who hurt you. That's an incredible statement. Coming from the mouth of a man wearing the scars that he was wearing. But that's the thing about forgiveness. It's not just something that you and I freely receive as Christians. But Easter means that now we go the next step. And it's something that we freely give away as Christians. We have experienced it ourselves. This is our response to redemption. Jesus says to us, you have been forgiven. Now, who's next? Who's next? Forgiveness is a very difficult thing. Like belief, forgiveness is a very difficult thing because it requires a shift in the cosmos. It means we are removed from the center of the universe. That is a difficult thing to have happen for us. Jesus says that's what we have to do. Now, there's a difference between trust and forgiveness, okay? Trust is something that has to be earned. And once trust is shattered, it is built back slowly. That is not something that we fling around freely with people. If someone has hurt you, then the act of trusting them again is a slow, slow process. And God understands that and God cautions us in that. But forgiveness is a completely different thing because forgiveness cannot be earned because forgiveness has already been bought. You cannot earn your own forgiveness because someone else has already paid for it. Forgiveness is different than trust. And so Jesus says to us, I understand when it's difficult to forgive someone who has hurt you and has hurt you deeply but this is what we are called to do. This is part of what it means to live in the reality of the resurrection. And when we refuse to forgive, then that becomes in us like a mustard seed of bitterness, like a sapling of hurt and hardness that will grow in us like kudzu until it takes over everything, all right, and chokes the joy and the love and the hope out of our lives. Nelson Mandela said. That bitterness. And to refuse to forgive. Is like drinking poison. And waiting for your enemy to die. Bitterness does not hurt. The other person. It only hurts you. And Jesus says. Forgive. Forgive freely. On the other hand. When you do forgive. Forgive. It is a sign of the unrivaled reign of God in your life. It is a sign that you are being shaped into the likeness of Jesus Christ, God's son. And it is a sign that the Holy Spirit is working resurrection in your life and is shaping you into a new creation. It is such a foreign idea in this world that it has to come from somewhere else. And it is a sign that you are being made like Christ. You are never more like Jesus Christ than when you forgive. Forgiveness has been given to us and is something that we also have to give away. The man with the scars in his hands requires it. It is our response to redemption. You have been forgiven. Now, who's next? Three, belief. Two, forgive. One, go go here's what Jesus says he says peace be with you as the father has sent me now I am sending you receive the Holy Spirit this is the story of the church right here that God who is a missionary God a God who sends the son not just the son who comes and becomes one of us he actually steps into our world not asks us to come to him, he comes to us. God sends the Son, and now the Son is sending us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Take note of where this happens. It happens behind locked doors. The disciples huddled together, safe together, and Jesus steps in the middle of these locked doors, and he says, you've got to get out of here. I am sending you out. Because I have been sent. Now you are sent as well. John is so intentional in the way he writes his book. And in this moment when Jesus says, I've been sent by the father. This is the 40th time that Jesus has referred to himself as the sent one. Look at the pattern all through John. The the 40th time that that he does this. And then on number 41, he says, now you, like me, have to go. You have to go is one of the imperatives of resurrection reality, one of the signs that you are living in resurrection. We are sent in the power of the Holy Spirit. When we first were starting this church, when we were dreaming about it before any meetings had had happened, before any Bible studies or anything like that had happened, we were trying to get, get what was in our hearts and in our minds out into a way that we could like get our minds around it, right? You know when that happens, when something is stirring and you just got to like get it on paper and see what it actually looks like in front of you? Well, we had that happening. And we had this sense from what Jesus says here and from the whole story of scripture that God is this sending God and that the church, the word ekklesia, the Greek word for church that we see through the New Testament means called out ones. And we had this like just nagging sense about us that we didn't think that means that God is hiding in a building and calling us out of the world to himself. Right. But that God is out in the world, that he is neck deep in it. And he is calling us out of our buildings to come join him in what he's doing in the world. And so we had this sense. And so we're trying to get it. And so we began to scribble on napkins because that's where every transformational idea is born. Right. As a scribble on a napkin. And so let's, let's put that picture up here. Here's what we thought it might look like. That we would be about two things. Discipleship and mission. And that discipleship is Jesus leading us into the heart of the Father through the Holy Spirit. But that mission was like flipping that funnel. Right? And that mission was the heart of the Father sending us out into the world. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. With the message of the love. Of Jesus Christ, And so a lot of times when we think about discipleship, we just have half of that funnel and it's like, let's get people more involved and let's draw them deeper into the life of the church until next thing you know, they've got the keys to the building and they're like there all the time, every free moment, right? But mission flips the funnel and it goes the opposite way and it says drawing you into the life and into the heart of the father and then being sent out into the world To engage the world with the truth. And so you don't get the keys to the building. You get the keys to the city. Because you're so crucial to the life of that city. Because that city knows that you love it. Because that city knows that you're there. And that you're doing everything you can. To show grace and mercy and love to it. You get the keys to the kingdom. Because that's the way it works, right? And so we thought this and we scribbled it out on a napkin. What does that look like? Off of the napkin and in our actual context. What does it look like to be sent? For us, it looks like all kind of different things. This, for one, meeting in a theater right downtown in the heart of it all. Where people who are right at the heart of this town can easily be a part of what is happening at the hub of the city itself and at the heart of the city itself. It means meeting outside for worship at the well, so we're literally out in the middle of it, right? Literally going out. It means meeting for Bible studies in upstairs McAllister's Deli. It means meeting for Bible studies down at Weaver Street. It means... Um, Old Man Coffee, the men's meeting at Merritt's Store and Grill. It means doing baptisms out at Morgan Creek, okay? It means getting out of just huddling together behind the locked doors and going into the world. It means starting a community garden, Lisa Kurtz, starting a community garden at these places that are actually out in the community, that benefit the community. It means all of these different things. It means being stirred By the Orange Movement idea with Catherine and Katie and Ann, who are trying to work for human trafficking, stop human trafficking in the world. It means all these things. It means Abby with worms for worms. It means Amanda, who was collecting things to give to exotic dancers in New Mexico. All right. It means uh, sheer love, which happened this week, where April and Janine went with the hairstylist from Sid's hair shop on Rosemary to the women and children's shelter and and did the hair of the ladies at the women's shelter. That's what it looks like. It means putting a piano out on Franklin Street and letting people come by and play it as a sense of the beauty that is deep in them that needs to be let out. That's what it looks like. What about with you? What about with you? What does it look like for you? What are you going to do? How does, it meet, how does it look for you to be sent? The deal is, whatever idea you come up with, I promise you, it won't be any weirder than the ones we just mentioned. All right? So there's something to that, right? And if the Holy Spirit has sparked something in your imagination, if the Holy Spirit has put a burden and a passion in your heart and your soul, then that is all the permission that you need to do it. What is on your napkin? What are you scribbling on your napkin? What are the dreams being born in your heart of the way you want to show love to the world, the love of Jesus Christ to the world? In your uh, cup holders there, there are napkins there, all right? If you've already used your napkin, well, your dream is destroyed. <laughs> way to go, all right? All right. No, but we want you to take these napkins home with you as a sign of just like there is no limit. They are blank and they are waiting for scribbles of dreams to be drawn all over them. This is how creative our God is. It's right there. He is waiting to do something. He is inviting us to fill out the edges of his imagination and we haven't even gotten close yet. And he's like, what did you love to do? What are you burdened for? Well, that's your permission. That's your calling. Do it. Don't wait for somebody else to lead it. Let the dream hit open air and see what happens. I want to encourage you with that. Take this home as a reminder. It's blank. Put something on it. It's waiting for a dream to be written on it. How is God going to send you in the world? Hiding behind locked doors is not an option. As the Father has sent, Jesus, now Jesus is sending us empowered by the Holy Spirit. As we wrap up today, we want to to reemphasize here that we want to be a sending church. And so that's why today we want to honor any of the seniors that are with us that are graduating from UNC. And also, we want to honor people who are going out this summer and going to be involved in different kind of missions, work, wherever that is, even if it's local or if it's on the other side of the world, however that looks. And so if you're a senior graduating from UNC, I want you to stand up. It doesn't matter if you're moving away or staying here. If you're a senior, then we want you to stand. We want to honor you today, okay? All right. Sweet. Cool. Good. Good. And if you are going somewhere, missions, or or doing some kingdom kind of work this summer, then I want you to stand as well right now. Seniors, go ahead and stay standing with us, by the way. All right, cool. Awesome. Here's what we're going to do as we close today. We're going to commission these people, and we're going to commission ourselves as well, as people who are sent, as people who are sent into the world with the message of the gospel. That our lives need to pulse with this message. We live out these things. We believe. We forgive. And we go. It's who we are. And it's what the resurrection sends us out to do. Father, we thank you for these people who are standing right now. For the seniors, we thank you for them. And for the encouragement that they've been to this church. And for the very vital role that they have played in the life of this church. And whether they stay here or whether they're going somewhere else, we pray that they would have this sense in them that they are loved by a community of people and that they have been a part of a community of people. And wherever they go, they will have this sense of commissioning that they have been sent. They're not just moving away, but they're being sent and encouraged in who they are and in where they're going. God, for those who are going out and, and participating in some kind of mission work this summer, some kind of work that is building your kingdom, we commission them as well. And we pray for your safety over them. We pray for your encouragement to them. And we pray that they would keep this sense in them that they have been sent by the Son who is sent by the Father and they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And everywhere we go, your kingdom is there. With every step we take, we are claiming new ground and planting new ground for the kingdom of God. In your name we pray. Amen.